You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. U.S. and Russian talks over Ukraine conclude with an agreement to further exchanges next week. Western governments continue to recommend vigilance against the threat of Russian cyber attacks against critical infrastructure. The U.S. Treasury Department sanctions four Ukrainian nationals for their work on behalf of Russia's FSB and its influence operations. A firmware boot kit is discovered in the wild. Security turnover at Twitter. Caleb Barlow looks at Wi-Fi hygiene. Our guest is Alan Liska on his latest ransomware book, And a number station gets hacked in style. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, January 21st, 2022. Both sides of the dispute over Russian preparation for hybrid warfare against Ukraine bring firm lines with them to the talks now underway in Geneva, where U.S. Secretary of State Blinken is meeting Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. The Guardian reports that Secretary Blinken told his counterpart that the U.S. would reply formally to Russian proposals, that is, the soft ultimatum issued last week, sometime next week but that certain NATO positions, in particular the right to offer membership to Ukraine and other countries, were not up for negotiation. The secretary also said that the U.S. was open to a summit between Presidents Biden and Putin. Secretary Blinken summarized the U.S. position, which he took care to point out was also the NATO position. The discussion today with Minister Lavrov was frank and substantive. I conveyed the position of the United States and our European allies and partners that we stand firmly uh, with Ukraine in support of its sovereignty and territorial integrity. We've been clear. If any Russian military forces move across Ukraine's border, that's a renewed invasion. It will be met with swift, severe, and a united response from the United States and our partners and allies. Those remarks are courtesy of C-SPAN. The Wall Street Journal sees last week's cyber attacks against Ukrainian targets as pointing to a broader risk of more general cyber war. Whispergate was, like NotPetya a few years ago, a pseudo-ransomware attack that delivered a wiper behind defacements and spurious ransom demands. It was, however, less sophisticated than its predecessor, and in particular it lacked the self-propagating worm features that made NotPetya a general danger. In any case, governments in the civilized world continue to take the threat of Russian cyber war seriously. 
Canada's communications security establishment Wednesday warned critical infrastructure operators, quote, to bolster their awareness of and protection against Russian state-sponsored cyber threats, end quote. The CSE cites earlier warnings by Britain's National Security Center and the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Indeed, the specific recommendations all three organizations offer track one another closely. Ukraine has asked another one of the Five Eyes, Australia, for technical assistance to help defend it against cyber attack, the ABC reports, and Australia has said that it stands in solidarity with NATO in support of Ukrainian security. Security firm Mandiant has outlined the form it expects Russian cyber operations to assume, quote, Russia and its allies will conduct cyber espionage, information operations, and disruptive cyber attacks during this crisis. Though cyber espionage is already a regular facet of global activity, as the situation deteriorates, we are likely to see more aggressive information operations and disruptive cyber attacks within and outside of Ukraine. End quote. Russia's allies in this case are Belarus and the occupied Ukrainian provinces in Crimea and the Donbass. The company thinks that both information operations and cyber attacks proper are a high risk. Quote, cyber capabilities are a means for states to compete for political, economic, and military advantage without the violence and irreversible damage that is likely to escalate to open conflict while information operations and cyber attacks, such as the 2016 U.S. election operations and the NotPetya incident, can have serious political and economic consequences, Russia may favor them because they can reasonably expect that these operations will not lead to a major escalation in conflict. End quote. The U.S. Treasury Department yesterday announced that it was bringing sanctions against four individuals for their role in advancing Russia's influence operations with the objective of destabilizing Ukraine. Treasury explained its rationale as follows, quote, Today's action is intended to target, undermine, and expose Russia's ongoing destabilization effort in Ukraine. This action is separate and distinct from the broad range of high-impact measures the United States and its allies and partners are prepared to impose in order to inflict significant costs on the Russian economy and financial system if it were to further invade Ukraine. The individuals designated today act at the direction of the Russian Federal Security Service, the FSB, an intelligence service sanctioned by the United States and support Russia-directed influence operations against the United States and its allies and partners, end quote. The individuals sanctioned include two members of Ukraine's parliament and a former deputy secretary of the Ukrainian National Security and Defense Council. The connection with the FSB is important since that Russian agency is itself under sanction. Researchers at security firm Kaspersky report finding the third known firmware bootkit, Moonbounce, in the wild. Implanted in UEFI firmware, Moonbounce is, Kaspersky says, not only sophisticated but difficult to detect and remove. The researchers attribute the activity with high confidence to APT-41, a Chinese threat group also known as Barium, Winti, and Wicked Panda. APT-41 carries out state-directed espionage, but there's also good reason to think it runs an APT side hustle as well, engaging as it does in financially motivated cybercrime. 
The U.S. FBI has had five members of APT-41 on its wanted list since 2019. Forensic News reports that U.S. officials are concerned that the Russian company Infotex has maintained a business presence in the U.S., despite its place on the Commerce Department's entity list. Twitter has purged its security team, the New York Times reports. The social platform's new CEO, Parag Agrawal, let Mudge, the company's head of security, go this week, and Twitter's CISO Rinky Sethi is also departing. They're both likely to land somewhere else soon. CISA issued four industrial control system advisories yesterday. Such advisories are always worth a look, and especially right now, with the civilized world very much on the alert for cyber attacks against critical infrastructure. And hey, everybody, let's think a little about spycraft, electronic warfare, and popular music. Some pirate radio station has hacked into the Russian number station UVB-76, a Cold War relic, still active, that for decades has broadcast numbers and beeps in support of espionage operations. It's on the short wave, and it sounds like this, with some Tatiana or Katerina reading off a corny bunch of numbers, totally in Russian, like this. So, of course, the pirates also put up a bunch of predictable Internet-inspired memes, which, when you think about it, is really okay in its own way, too, because the noise they put up through their SDR drew a troll face when you ran it through the Spectrum Analyzer. But Vice says the hackers also chose to replace some of the dull beep and number feed with Gangnam Style. So props to the pirates for acting like a bunch of internet delinquents and K-pop hotheads. As an exercise in jamming, it's pretty good, like the way the opposing force at the National Training Center used to jam the Blue Force tactical nets with California Dreamin', because nothing says a guard's motorized rifle division is on the move into your AO better than the mamas and the papas. So well done, pirates. Not actually that we approve of this sort of thing, but on the other hand, you've got to admire their style, especially when it's Gangnam style. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Alan Liska is a threat intelligence analyst at Recorded Future and author of the new book, Ransomware, Understand, Prevent, Recover. I spoke with Alan Liska over on the Recorded Future podcast about the book, and we've got an excerpt from that conversation here. I co-authored the book with Tim Gallo uh, back in 2016, and the ransomware kind of market has changed a lot since 2016, and ransomware attacks have changed dramatically. Some of the defenses that are needed have changed. Two really big things are big game hunting. So instead of, you know, when I wrote in 2016 or when we wrote in 2016, ransomware was single machine, encrypt that machine, and then you're done. It was still a big problem for organizations because they were getting hit a lot. You know, so those single machines kind of added up. Whereas today, it's encrypting thousands of machines at the same time. And of course, with that comes a much more hefty ransom involved. And then there's also the idea of that extra extortion, the double and triple extortion of leaking files, which wasn't the case. And I'll also throw in ransomware as a service has made it a lot easier for anybody to kind of get into the ransomware game. Whereas in 2016, you had to have some level of technical skills not much, but you had to have some. Now, really, there's handbooks, um, there's guides that are available. Um, you know, ransomware actors brag about how easy their ransomware is to install once you get in the network. And so that really does make a big difference. Yeah, it strikes me how much this uh, vertical, I guess we could call it, has really professionalized itself. That, you know, it's. It's not just uh, you know the, the the kids in the you know, in the AV club who are doing this. I mean these are these are serious organizations, right? Absolutely. I mean you know when we talk about the growth of ransomware, it's not just that ransomware itself has gotten bigger, but the ransomware Inc., if you will, has gotten bit bigger. And that you know now you have ransomware groups that hire professional negotiators. Well, not professional. They hire at least English-speaking negotiators. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they hire developers to build out their ransomware. They hire initial access brokers to gain that first footing. You know, and, and then buy the access from them. So they, there's this whole sort of set of cottage industries that have sprung up in support of ransomware. And part of that is just because ransomware makes so much money. Right now, outside of possibly business email compromise, ransomware is the most profitable, by far, cybercriminal activity. So what has changed then in this updated book in terms of your recommended approaches for people to prevent this and and deal with it if they do find themselves falling victim to it? You know, it's funny because some of the things just haven't changed. People just haven't started doing them yet. So, you know, some of the things like you need better asset management, you need better vulnerability management, right? That that's kind of we've been you know, you've you've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing this for a long time. We've been saying that for twenty plus years. 
that still is kind of needs to be done. Network segmentation, that was in the first book, and that's still highly recommended now, um, even more so with uh, you know, mass deployment of ransomware. Some of the things that are different, though, really focusing on improving your incident response and disaster recovery plans. So, you know, before your incident response was on a single machine, right? So you can have kind of a loose-based incident response or a loose-based disaster recovery because you were only recovering for one thing. So if it wasn't fully up-to-date or whatever, it wasn't the end of the world. Now you need an updated incident response plan and disaster recovery plan because you need to take into account the fact that you're not down one machine, but you're down a thousand machines. And how are you going to respond? How are you going to get services back online? How are you going to prioritize that? Especially when once it happens, every other part of your organization is going to tell you that they need to be a top priority. So you, you, you need to have that in advance. Ransomware negotiators weren't a thing um, when uh, when we wrote the last book. So discussing when you need to hire a ransomware negotiator and you know if, if you're going to have to pay the ransom, why it's so important to have a good ransomware negotiator in there instead of trying to do it yourself. Double, triple, quadruple extortion wasn't a thing. How to prepare for that, how to, how to handle the fact that you're going to have a whole lot of bad news coming your way, possibly for weeks or months at a time, depending on, you know, whether you pay the ransom and how long the ransomware actor kind of strings out the release of files. And then, you know, really, uh, there's a whole chapter dedicated to protecting your domain controller because that wasn't as big a deal. When they're landing on a single machine, not as big of a deal to have to worry about them getting credentials and getting to the domain controller, but now that's kind of critical to any ransomware operation, so it has to be critical to any ransomware defense. That's Alan Liska from Recorded Future. The book is Ransomware, Understand, Prevent, Recover. You can hear my complete interview with Alan on the Recorded Future podcast. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Caleb Barlow. Caleb, it is always great to have you back on the show. Uh, you know, we just went through uh, the holiday season, and that means lots of folks have gotten lots of new devices that they are uh, hooking up to their home networks. And for most people, I'm sure that means Wi-Fi. 
What are some of the things we need to look out for as we're uh, connecting these uh, newly purchased devices? Dave, did you get anything for Christmas besides coal? <laughs> did, did you did you get those cool Apple or Google devices got, you were after? I, you know, I got some N95 masks. Uh, I got a new toothbrush. Uh, You've been a bad boy, uh, you know, Dave. It's, it's it was uh, we called it the loosey goosey Christmas this year. So I, you know what? I cannot say that I got any fancy electronic devices this year. No. Well, I, I know you have kids of similar age to mine. Yes. And if they your did. Ho- if your home network <laughs> is anything like mine, it's totally yes. out of control in COVID time. So like yes. every kid in the neighborhood is connected to my network. Every visitor mm. and every device. And I swear. If a 14-year-old shows up at my house, they've got a watch, they've got a phone, they've got four other devices, and they need Wi-Fi when they come to the door because it's more important than food. You know, but the bigger problem is many of these things, old appliances, friends that aren't friends anymore, they are still connected to your network, right? And this includes everything from my sub-zero refrigerator is connected to my network, why I don't mm. completely understand. Um, <laughs> well, I, if you leave the door open, it sends you an alert, which is kind of cool, right? Okay. You know, it's useful. The alarm system, lighting, who knows what else. But the problem here is you don't know the inventory of what's connected in your house. And more importantly, you don't have any idea of what's old, unpatched, and no longer needed. So let's talk about a way to clean this up, Dave. Mm. Okay. okay. So this kind of fits into New Year's resolutions right up there with change the batteries on your fire alarm. I want everybody <laughs> to go out and change the name of your home Wi-Fi network, because this is the easiest way to root out all the devices. And yes, it's gonna be painful for your kids for 24 hours, right? Mm. So add devices back in as you find them. If your router allows you to do it, you can figure out the few things you've got that are hardwired, but refresh it clean and make sure everything is updated and patched as you add it back onto your Wi-Fi network. What about some of the things that may not immediately alert you that they're a problem? You know, like you mentioned, your your sub-zero freezer. I'm thinking about your alarm system might not immediately tell you that, hey, I I don't have access here. Is that a concern? Well, if you have life safety devices in your house, like, you know, you should definitely make sure, for example, your alarm system is connected or, you know, if— if, if grandma lives with you and has some sort of, you know, alerting mechanism, you definitely want to make sure those things are connected. I would also argue, do you really want those things wirelessly connected? Maybe they should be hardwired, right? Hmm. Um, but the next thing that you've got to do here is when you rename it, and we've talked about this in the CyberWire before, this is really important. You've got to name it to something not unique, not your address, and certainly not your name. What most people don't realize is that your SSID is mapped. It's mapped by cellular carriers. It's mapped by the trucks that are driving around, you know, doing street mapping because the SSIDs in neighborhoods are used when you can't get a GPS signal to figure out where devices are. And if your SSID was like Bitnernet, I could Mm -hmm. go out and look that up and figure out where in the world it is. And it would tell me where your router is within a few feet. And don't forget, your devices are broadcasting out your the SSIDs they connect to all the time. So all I have to do is be near you, and I can figure out what your home Wi-Fi network is, and then I can figure out where you live. And oddly enough, you know, when I consult with law enforcement, this is a great tactic for law enforcement to figure out where a suspect's been traveling, where they connect to, because they're broadcasting it out. And all they got to do is look up those SSIDs and figure out where they are. Hmm. All right. Well, good advice for sure. Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. 
And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out Research Saturday and my conversation with Rob Boyce from Accenture Security. We'll be discussing his joint research with Prevalian titled, Who are the latest targets of cybergroup Lyceum? That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.